Hello and welcome to Foundation, the official podcast from Apple TV+. I'm Jason Concepcion. This is your guide to the galaxy from Trantor to Terminus and hundreds of millions of other worlds. Space is a big place. We aim to make it smaller and brighter and add some context to everything that you see on the show. Every week I'm recapping and breaking apart each episode of season two with Foundation showrunner and executive producer David S. Goyer. Welcome back, David. Thanks for having me. Uh, today we're talking about episode four, where the stars are scattered thinly. And we have a guest here who joined us last season. It's Foundation co-executive producer Lee Dana Jackson. Thanks for coming on the podcast again, Dana. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. All right, let's start with the recap. I, this episode is so fun. Uh, it was written by both of you and directed by Mark Tondurai. Uh, we start on Trantor, where Sarath is investigating the Empire's role in the death of many of her family members. Dawn denies any role in it, says, you know, I'll look into it. I don't think it was us, but I'll look into it. Uh, Sarath clearly feels like Dawn is maybe the more approachable, more cynical version, the more malleable version of the, Both. Of yeah. the Emperors. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever wondered why they don't have us marrying? I think we'd have suited. Um, and we're getting some drama here. Meanwhile, we learn that Sarath's counselor, Rue, was once a courtesan, bedded by Dusk when he was day. The Empire tends to get wisdom late. For example, I'm much smarter now than when last we talked. I wouldn't remember. Of course, like all the other courtesans, she doesn't remember any of this. Her memory was erased, and he suggests something quite romantic. Hey, let's watch the sex tape over some wine, which he keeps. He has it on file somewhere. We could watch, if you like, in my quarters. It's private. Lots of flirting going on across the galaxy, also over in Terminus, Hober Mallow and Constant. There's an immediate spark between them. Connection, yeah. yeah. Did I puke on myself? You did. Dr. Selden, however, has other plans for them. Not a, not a fan, Dr. Selden, of emotional connections overriding his greater plan. Folks on Terminus enter the vault with Director Cermak and Polly and the rest. They meet Dr. Selden in his library. Have something to eat. You must be hungry. He has fully assumed at this point the role of the prophet in there. Hober's been wandering around the vault for a few days due to the way time works inside of there. I wouldn't go that way. I took a dump over there. And Dr. Selden says, I understand what you've been working towards, but our mission actually is to avoid war. We want to we put it off for a while. We don't want to start one. And Director Cermak is, is notably annoyed at this. Prevent a war. Bel Rios and Glewin arrive on Suena looking for an informant who can tell them about what's going on with the Foundation and what's going on out here in the outer edges of the galaxy. Bell is a little too excited beating up the locals. He's really getting some of that uh, trauma and stress out. If these magicians really are a threat, you'll know. And they are shocked to learn from this informant that the Foundation has tech that outstrips the Empire's tech, whisper ships that can jump to wherever, personal auras, just like the Empire's. And in the end, Bell Mercy kills the informant at his request. They escape with a book, which no one has seen in who knows how many centuries, uh, certainly which Glewin has never seen before. And now he can begin his yearly reading challenge. He can start, he can start reading books. I've never actually seen a book. Most haven't. Books are for old men. This is a really fun episode. Dana, what was your what was your favorite kind of new thing to play with in this season of Foundation? I mean, this season we introduced superpowers. Yeah. Which 
for sure. I mean, how how can that not be the coolest new thing? Um, but but I also just I think the scale was I think the scale was bigger. I think some of the relationships were more intimate. The relationships and the characters who I was I was most connected to. I think uh, Gail and Salver's relationship being really deep and complex was was fun because those were the two characters who I spent most of my time working on in season one. Helping those relationships unfold was one of my favorite aspects of it. But you know. I don't know. I thought the powers were pretty fun. <laughs> I got to be honest. <laughs> uh, last season, uh, you talked about how uh, Synax uh, was one of your favorite things to work on. Do you have anything mm-hmm. like that from season two that just you love doing it? Oh, Una's World. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That whole sequence was really fun. I mean, I think I, I think we talked about this in season one, Jason. You know, I've always felt personally like the character who I, as a viewer, the character who I felt was like my avatar character was Gail in many ways, just Mm -hmm. because I was like, oh, this person, you know, this smart black person from this part of town moving into the big city and having these experiences, I I felt an affinity for that. So that's carried through all the seasons for me. Well, let's let's jump into the episode. Episode four in this episode is, seems to me, is so based on these relationships, attractions, the responses to those attractions, people getting together and saying, can we work together on something where it's, whether it's Sarah and Day or Hober and the Foundation, um, you're seeing these kind of alliances form and these alliances trying to figure out how can we work together? How can we tackle a problem? I think Bell and Glaywin are very interesting. Something that really stood out to me was when they arrive on Suena and have this scrap with the locals, Glenwyn is a little shocked at how violent Bell was and how uh, quickly he went into like high order violence. And for Glenwyn to be surprised at the way his partner is acting, it must be like, it must have been quite shocking, almost like seeing a different person emerge. It was cathartic, I won't lie. Yeah, but was it necessary? There might have been a bloodless path. Uh... There wasn't. Well, we can't know, really, because you dove in without meeting my eye first or giving me a signal. That is not how we work. Breaking a nose out of the blue. Guess I picked up a few new tricks. Um, what is their relationship like now? I mean, Bell has been in a labor camp for six years. Yeah. And you, know, you take someone out of this incredibly harsh, violent environment where he's been sentenced there for life, so he has no expectation of ever getting out. And I think the idea there was that even even the most disciplined person is going to unravel after a certain period of time. And the question is, can he be knit back together over the course of the season? That's the question that we're trying to raise through Glaywin. I'm sure part of him is wondering, wow, maybe I would have preferred for my husband to have not come back so I can preserve that memory of him. And will I be so horrified by what he does that I'll be forced to stop him? That's the story that we're starting to introduce. I am just saying, by the time you recognize an atrocity, you may have already been complicit in one. Just shut up and walk. Yeah, I thought when they first get back together and you see the physical transformation, we're, we're all sort of familiar with that kind of archetypal moment where he's, he's now returned to himself 
Um, and, and they have their sort of reunion as the people who they had seen each other as. Then following that up with this sequence where there is this darkness that's inside him and it's not something that he's conscious of anymore. He, he's, he, because he's maintained this regalness and his sort of honor in all the scenes where we've seen him, like when we introduced him and he's, he's yeah. talking to Demerzel. But then underneath all of that, there is still this wound that's the result of this traumatic experience he's gone through. The idea of them trying to figure out whether they can overcome that and how that meshes with the person who he thought of himself as and whose partner thinks he was or knew him to be, I thought that was an interesting launch point for their emotional relationship. The planet Suena, uh, which we go back to in this episode, I can't help but feel badly for the locals who are constantly being meddled with by these greater forces around them. You can't portray an entire planet, but when you are creating a new world for us to see, you know, how much do you think of how representative whatever group of locals is going to be of the wider planet? Well, we we were, look, we were definitely playing with the idea of a, you know, a country or a society being mucked about by colonists and different Mm -hmm. forces. So I think we were looking at things that had happened in Indonesia or in India. And because we were shooting in Lanzarote, which is kind of midway between Spain and Africa, we just decided that the locals are largely Canarians. Mm. We decided let's cast within the local population here on the island. And it's a small island. And top of mind was that that island itself had been colonized by Spain. There was an indigenous community that was there that was co-opted and messed about with Spain. It's definitely something that we thought about. You're always, when you're doing these uh, storylines that have real world resonance or antecedents, there's always this delicate tightrope act that you're walking between saying, hey, we're telling a story that's about things that we experience and observe in the real world, but also being conscious to not say, hey, a million years in the future, same people are going to be oppressed. A million years in the future, like the power structure is going to look exactly like it looks right now. And I think it was interesting to see the way that looked like a familiar power structure dynamic but also wasn't as on the nose as the worst version of that. Absolutely. I mean, that's something that we wrestle with constantly on the show because on one hand, you somewhat lean into the tropes in order to tell the story and and science fiction is a metaphor, but you don't want to lean into the tropes so much, hopefully, that you're reinforcing the tropes. And it's, as Dana suggests, it is a constant balancing act and we debate it all the time and sometimes hopefully more often than not we're successful and sometimes maybe not so much <laughs> um Bar is a wonderful character is he something so he's like something like the cia station chief of suena right like, that's exactly but it's a not fun posting you know like being station chief of like antarctica <laughs> exactly mm. we've come seeking information about the magicians i know no magicians I'm a humble vintner, as you can clearly see. Patrician, the magicians I'm concerned with hail from beyond the frontier guards, where the stars are scattered thinly. And the cold of space seeps in. 
part of this season, we were adapting the novella, I believe it's called The General, that composes the first part of the second book of Asimov's Foundation and Empire. And that story largely begins with Bell encountering Dusenbar, who is an imperial informant. And that's where the phrase where the stars are scattered thinly comes from. And there's all this wonderful wordplay and and it's quite poetic and a departure from some of the stuff that Asimov was writing in the first book. I think he'd matured a bit as a writer. I wanted to preserve a lot of that in their interactions. And to be frank, it was a challenge because did you need to have it all from a plot (laughs) standpoint? Maybe no, but, but we're not just adapting Asimov's plot. We're adapting his ideas, his philosophy. And I love the idea of this sort of noble general talking to an informant who's basically been waiting decades for someone to show up, who also may have misgivings about the empire that he's serving, but they're still performing Mm -hmm. their duties. And there's a kind of melancholic aspect in their exchange. And both Ben Daniels, who plays Bell, and Jesper Christensen, who plays Doosum, who we know from the Bond films, they just did such a wonderful, wonderful job. And I, I'm just glad that these scenes, we were able to preserve them, you know, in the episode. It feels to me as if, you know, living here amongst these people, he just has a different perspective and certainly a different perspective on what the Empire is doing wrong out here. If they're doing anything, they've kind of retreated from this area. And yet he continues to do his work, which, why? Why not just say, you know what, forget it. Is anybody even reading these things? It's interesting. I mean, he, I don't think he's particularly happy there. I mean, is it lack of inertia? Why Why is he still doing it? He says, I've been sending dispatches and no one's ever responded un, un, until you. And, and the fact of the matter is, there are lots of people like that in the real world that are, yeah. exactly. He's a station chief. He probably drinks too much wine. He says, I'm a humble vintner. You could argue that if he had more agency, he, he would have said, screw it, and left town years ago. And maybe he should have, you know. But at the same time, these clerics showing up and then Empire showing up is also kind of exciting to him because... Finally, all these years of waiting, something (laughs) paid off and he gets to actually do something. Uh, I want to ask you about uh, Doosan Barr's house. It's beautiful. Really, is that a location? Is that a set? That's a location. It's actually a restaurant on the island of Lanzarote, which is uh, in the Canary Islands. And that was designed by an architect named Cesar Manrique, who is a, he's a Spanish artist and sculptor. And what's interesting is he, he, came to Lanzarote. I think there are seven or eight islands that people live on in the Canary Islands. And Lanzarote is a relatively small island. So he built, I don't know, five or six really interesting places on that island. Another one that he built was actually the Cactus Garden, where the magic show takes place in episode two. That was also designed by the same architect. His imprint is felt everywhere on the island. And I think we ended up shooting in possibly even four buildings or locales that, that he designed. Yeah, they're very, very striking. I have a, uh, I have a small theory about Bell and Glewin that I'm, uh, I'd love to, I'd love to run by you. Lay it uh, on us. It feels, it felt as if this kind of, you know, you need to be careful, Bell. You know, you might stumble into atrocity. I do wonder if Bell will 
will end up in a situation in which he's going to have to kill a lot of people in this coming war. Uh, and Glewin will be faced with the choice of, should I stop this person I love from doing this thing? It feels like Bell might be on the road to, to committing an actual space atrocity. Um, well, I don't know how much I should say, but we are definitely laying out that kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think we'd be pretty lame writers to spend all that time talking about it and not, you know, right. not at yeah. least play around with that. And then the question is, you know, which way is it going to play out? <laughs> the thing that's most interesting about putting Bell in a morally complicated situation is that we know who he thinks he is and who he mm. used to be, and we know who he has become. How do those two things reconcile themselves when faced with a challenge that those two characters, those two versions of himself don't agree on? That's like that's the moral conundrum that you that you put that character in. Oh, that's really interesting. Is to those who fight. Is to those who fight and ask why. He's right. That's the toast. An important addition from someone who clearly asks why. Dana, what is your relationship with the Isaac Asimov story, The General, which a lot of this kind of the Bel Rios plot lines are are pulled from? Before season two, David had us read the stories that this season was going to draw from. And much like season one, I kind of read them, but I don't love the text in the same way that I love the world building in the contemporary version. So I only read it in as much as I needed to know where what the roadmap was, but I didn't do a super deep dive. That's what I did the first time around too. This was like kind of my role. I was like, David, I'm going to give you this and I'm going to focus here. I know you know these books backward and forward. Some of this is kind of intentional because we've got different kinds of writers on the show and we are writing the show on two tracks. So we're writing the show for fans of Asimov. And then we're also writing the show for a broader audience, perhaps even people that don't like science fiction. And so again, as we're putting together the room for the season, some of the people have more of an affinity or a history with the books and some don't because it has to work for people that haven't read the books as well. And so I think that tension between, well, this is Mm. is what happened in the books, or this is the way this was stated. And people who might say, yeah, but that was 75 years ago, and you can't say that today, or you shouldn't say that today, or here's why. I think it's really important. And we have constant dialogue about that when we're writing the show is the tension between staying true and pure to the source text and adapting it and deviating from it. I learned season one that my distance from the text allowed me to interrogate things about the text with him because mm. he knew them intimately, but I could push back and say, well, but what about this? But what about that? Because I didn't have that same fidelity. I, I didn't have a responsibility to that fidelity. And that allowed us to get to places that, to his point, might be slightly different from what was on the page, but honors the intent or honors the meaning or the direction that the material is going. Let's uh, uh, let's talk about Dr. Selden. You know, last season, I spent every episode asking you what's in the vault. We've, uh, in most of the early part of this uh, podcast season, have done the same. We are now in the vault. Uh, we've met Dr. Selden in there. Ha- um, tell us about crafting this atmosphere inside the vault. We always knew 
that we were going to go inside the vault in the second season. And we wanted to play around with, you know, one of the things that we introduced is that it's it's a tesseract, that it's it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. So not unlike Doctor Who's TARDIS in, in that <laughs> respect. And that time flows differently, which is also interesting because Hober goes in there and, and Constant and Polly show up in their mind, you know, a minute or two later, and he's been stuck in there for two days. <laughs> and the thing that I would say to anyone who's listening to these podcasts, there's almost nothing in this show that we drop like that, that won't have some kind of implication down the line. Oh, uh, I was really struck by the uh, the difference between our two Harrys. The Harry that is accompanying Gale and Salvor is so harried and stressed all the time. And this Harry is very, very smooth, very confident. It's all running just as he envisioned it. He sees them come in. He says, ah, the robes. We're in our religious phase. Great. Tell us about how these two Harrys have diverged so much. As you say that, I just to the point that David just made about setting things up, that confidence is one of the most fun things to play with over the course of this season and the next. His That character's confidence is, is I think, one of the more interesting elements. A guy who thinks he knows everything. Yeah, we always planned, even in season one, that there were going to be two Harrys. And Jared was very excited at the prospect of playing two characters that slowly diverge over the course of the seasons. And so to that end, in the script in season two, the Harry that, well, now is a re-embodied Harry who has a a body back. And then the Harry that's in the vault has no physical body and is just a consciousness. And so to that end, even in the script and then in dialogue, the one that is with Gail is Harry. And the one that's in the vault is Dr. Selden. And they're two distinct characters and two distinct personalities. And as the season continues and certain people encounter Dr. Selden, some of them address him as Harry and he will subtly correct them and (laughs) say Dr. Selden. And so we're watching a divergence of, of these two characters. And Jared just loved it. And you can see that he loved it in this episode. This is the, you know, the second time we've seen Dr. Selden. And he's just having the time of it. And he's charming and arrogant at the same time and seems like he knows every possible answer. And he was just like a pig and shit, just loving it, loving it, loving it. (laughs) (laughs) Those scenes were an absolute delight to film. I refer to the two Harrys as uh, Vault Harry and Body Harry. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I love it. Body Harry. I was... um so interested in the reactions of the foundation members meeting basically their God, their inspiration for being there. Uh, I wonder if you could take us through that. You know, Polly seems gratified at first, but then I could sense some wariness, some small creepings of doubt. Uh, Cermak is honored, but then a little irritated. It was very, very interesting. This man that they've been waiting so long to meet who they have now finally met again. And then you've got Hober, who just doesn't give a shit. Who's just over in the corner, (laughs) shoving his mouth with canapes. And and just like, literally his cheeks are filled, you know, like he's like that kid in uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And he just doesn't care that he's talking to the prophet at all. 
Holly was the most interesting character's point of view f- for, for me in that arc because Polly met Dr. Selden once before. He was there the first time it ever happened. And now he's coming back and he's meeting this guy again. And maybe it's just me being like old enough that things in the real world that I knew from when I was young aren't aren't the same now. Like the way people talk about Jordan as somebody who like saw Jordan, you're like, oh, yes. And like, but, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. watching Polly in these moments later in life and he's kind of like, that's not, it was a little bit like that, but not quite. Or, you know, the the degree of to which he's, credulous or incredulous about the entire experience to me was fascinating. Just that age and wisdom that he has, even as sort of messed up as he is when we first meet him, I thought was a really interesting dynamic. And also be wary of meeting your heroes, right? Right. Yeah. Um, Or spending too much time with them. It's like the more time you spend with them, you realize they're not gods and they've got foibles. And in a lot of instances, the more time you spend with them, they start to become a bummer or they can become a bummer. I I mean- just just Dr. Selden saying, ah, we're in the religious phase, which lets you know that, you know, his particular perspective is one uh, not deeply rooted in a religious conviction about this whole thing that they're doing. But then he's so willing to play with it. So, you know, the kiss on the forehead and this, he's so willing to play that messianic role, even after saying, essentially, I will now take on the role of the prophet. And here I am now doing it. Something on your mind, Polly. It's just Jaeger. Uh, Jaeger? The warden you incinerated. Why did you kill him? I had to. For God to be effective, you have to be intermittently wrathful. Besides, I heard the warden on my doorstep. How long before he declared himself the only holy vessel worthy of my spirit? hmm? So it was. Divine judgment. Let no being presume upon my mercy. Very, very fascinating guy. Do the Harrys, how much do the Harrys know about each other? That's the Ooh. most fun thing. <laughs> That's, we can't go there. I can't, mean, you can't just, answer that. You just, you just hit, hit the nail on the head where some really interesting stuff's going to go down later. Oh, wow. We know at this point in the story, they've had different experiences, right? Yes. We know that one is very attuned to the plan. That's why he can say things like, we're in the religious phase. He, Dr. Selden is like, okay, we're, we're still on the roadmap. And the others had these seemingly divergent experiences. The degree to which they are aware of those two differences goes really awesome places. There's also a really interesting moment in episode two where... Harry's on the beggar before they escape from Synax. And he's just ranting and crazy. And he basically says, there's another Harry. And you see Selver going, wait, what? What? There's another Harry? <laughs> and he says, yes. <laughs> and he calls him Other Selden. Mm-hmm. And he says, that guy doesn't know my mind and I don't know his. And it just, it's meant to sort of fly past the audience really fast, but at least Salver is the one who clocks it, hopefully in the way the audience will, and just is saying, what the F, you know, is going on there? Uh, let's, uh, let's go to Empire, where, uh, you know, the kind of broader theme of these various flirtations and uh, relationships is uh, boiling as well. I, I'm kind of fascinated with the Sarath-Dawn relationship. She clearly feels like, I have more latitude with this one. Maybe this is one that I can break off 
from the rest, or maybe this is one that will be more willing to deal with me, either because he's younger and more naive or younger with a lot more to lose. You know, once the marriage is is done, he'll be basically out of a job. And it feels also very, very dangerous for Dawn. Uh, what's going on here? Well, it's interesting because Day selected Sarath because she was the youngest and potentially the most naive. Mm-hmm. And he felt that he could bigfoot her and she would be, you know, he could more easily manipulate her. And Sarath now is doing the same thing with Dawn, right? She's working with the youngest and the most easily manipulatable and the one with the most to lose. And so the question is, how Machiavellian is Sarath? Does she have any actual affection for Dawn or is she completely playing him or what is going on here? She definitely seems like she's playing a dangerous game. And as you say, Dawn is playing a dangerous game by even talking to her. But Dawn knows that Day is also effectively cutting him out and that he's going to be obsolete if this marriage happens. So I think at the same time, Dawn is kind of poking around and wondering about his own agency. You know, one of the things that um one of the things that I thought was fun in working on season two was that there's this line where Damerzellen is talking to Dawn about like how Empire responds to things. And, you know, he's like, do how do we how do we handle these things? Is this what we all how we handle this thing? And she's like, you always do. Like it's like you guys always play the same cycle over and over again. Mm. And one of the fascinating things about getting into the second cycle of Empire for us narratively, obviously not literally the next cycle, but the second cycle of those characters is the ways in which they play their emotional cards over again, but different. <laughs> so it's the same but different. And Dawn finding another fascination, even though it's not romantic in the same way, but finding another fascination with a peer. Mm. It was like that echo and the way that echo changes or evolves through the different, through this new dawn. Yeah. And how much of that is is just, that's where dawns are at that yeah, age. Exactly. Yeah. Do they all have that fascination? Do they all have that, that Achilles heel? That's so interesting because when they first meet up, Sarath is asking him, you know, did you have anything, did Empire have anything to do with killing my family? But Dawn basically says, no, I don't think, I don't think so. Uh, And it's, it is such a naive answer (laughs) because clearly there's huge incentive for Empire to do it and look where we are. Um, And yet he doesn't seem to be able to put his arms around the fact that he in the future, not too far flung in the future, will be making decisions like that. Well, I, yeah, right. I mean, the first the first thing that's pun intended that's starting to dawn on Dawn in this episode is, no, he couldn't have done that. Wait, could he have? And, <laughs> and uh, yeah. have I just been kept out of the loop in a bunch of stuff? So that, that that's the first thing is, how out of the loop am I? And then the second component, as you say, is, God, maybe I would do crap like that 10 years from now. I would still like to know if my intended is capable of it. By which I mean, I suppose, do you feel like you would be? Since, as we've established, you are the same man. I don't think I would be. But age brings changes. 
And I'm well prepared to think I could become capable of it. Ooh. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> um, let's talk about uh, Dusk and Rue. A really interesting reunion here. Also a very strange and awkward date. <laughs> I, it, 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 it strikes me that Dusk pitching, hey, let's watch our sex tape, is exactly the sort of thing that someone with immense power who has never been told, hey, that's not a good idea, would suggest. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, w- even as we record this, right, there's a lot of them actually out there, right? Too a lot many. of A lot of men in yeah. power that should know better, that make a lot of stupid decisions. And hey, in the future, I'm I'm sure that will be the same. And, and what is what is in this for Dusk? It feels very. He he basically says, "I've never done this before. This kind of revisiting a past dalliance." Is it just? Hey, remember when I was emperor? Remember how good that was? This is all coming to an end soon. Is it just that kind of nostalgia of of power and the trappings of power? I mean, it's coming to an end soon, but sooner than it would normally for him yeah. because if this marriage happens, the other interesting thing, well, it's twofold, right? If the marriage happens, then it's really coming to an end, but he knows her and she's, Rue will now be installed in the palace. So you could also look at ah, it from yeah. a Machiavellian standpoint, yeah. right? It's not a bad thing if he can reignite his relationship with his woman who's now going to be at the side of the queen of the galaxy Mm. it's not a bad thing either so i i guess one could argue is he being stupid by reigniting this maybe he's being you know canny my thought with the with those two characters is that as the older conciliaries they're the two best chess players on the board Ah. so all the dynamics in their relationship to each other are loaded with the fact that I'm the old advisor to the person who's going to be running things. I'm also the old advisor to the person who's going to be running things. And we have this intimate history, but we also know these guys aren't really ready to play the game that we play, right? <laughs> so so maybe we're playing at this other level. That's exactly it. They're they're playing checkers and we're playing chess. That's so good. I, it's similar to the uh, the contrast between our two Harrys. Seeing our dusk as he was as day in this, uh, you know, video archive, a much smoother character, a much more charming character, less frenetic on edge, less touchy, uh, a very, very different Cleon. That's the fun of these guys is sort of comparing and contrasting and, and really treating them as different characters, different characters who have reacted to the larger galactic events so, so part of it is that, and then part of it is also, frankly, as we sit with our actors thinking about, well, Terry was doing this this season. W- what's the polar opposite of that? Or, you know, with Lee, Lee was doing this, you know, in the previous season. And what would just be fun to see Lee do? And we talk with him about it, too, with the three actors. And as we're putting the pieces together for the next season, we think, well, what if you know, what if this day was like that? Or what if this, you know, dawn was like that? And as the show progresses, you're going to start to see some really interesting, I don't want to call them variants because that's a that's an MCU <laughs> term, but, but some interesting variants that, uh, that start to diverge further and further and further away from the guys that we met in season one. I, I would say David is 
underselling the thoughtfulness with which he approaches this particular concept. Because yes, he mm. goes and has these conversations with the actors about what they did and what they might want to do and what was most exciting about them. But on the writing side, we started with the first three Cleons who are in episode one and the roadmap of the emotional and psychological roadmap from this Cleon was this way, day, this day was this way, this way, this dusk was this way when we first met him. Then this happened. And so that turned him into the one who we have in episode four. Then this happened and that turned him into the one that's between seasons one and two. So by the time we get to this one, that's how he can emotionally be the thing that David and Lee discussed in person. Like there's a very thoughtful progression from the first one to the one that we see. Mm. So I, I would just, I only say that to say that he's pretty meticulous in how we actually arrive at doing it on the page, which was something that I just as a writer have admired, so. Thanks, man. <laughs> this is kind of the elephant in the room, at least for me, and I'm sure other people are thinking this as well as they're watching this. Has Day considered just executing Dawn yet? I'm sure Demarzel has like gamed it out. I'm going to have to kill Dawn at some point. What do I do? But as Day thought about it, you know, certainly in historical succession quibbles, this is what would happen. What do, you, what do you think, Jason? What's your theory? My theory is that this Cleon, this Day, hasn't fully grasped that he will would have to do that, that that is an option, that he would have to heavily weigh, but that Demarzel surely has thought about it. I mean, that's an interesting theory, and I don't think we can confirm <laughs> or deny it. <laughs> but, but look, you are thinking all of the things that we're hoping the audience will think. So, you know, gold star for us so far. And given the fact that we know that she's done it once before. Yeah. It's always on the table. Right? Absolutely. Well, Dana, uh, thank you for joining us. It was wonderful having you here and, and catching up. My, my pleasure. Thank you for uh, having me back again. I hope you uh, enjoy the season. All right, it's time for another round of Building the Foundation, a light speed round of questions about the world of foundation. Show you one. To build You're allowed to build your foundation. I was supposed to be the one. Why do you put her in the park? You want to be in control? You know nothing! First, uh, David, how many prime radiants are there? We've seen two now. Are there, or one? There's one, but it can basically. It exists in a state of quantum superposition, so it can be in more more than one place at the same time. It's quantum mechanics, baby. I love it. Uh, so we, we see that time works differently inside the prime radiant. What happens to Hober's poop? Does anybody cleaning that up or is it just like dissolve? I don't think anyone cleans it up, but I think <laughs> the vault would take that and recycle it and turn it into energy. Okay. So there might be like a Roomba or something like that that comes through and then processes it, it which leads me next to think about, well, where's the food come from that Hover's eating? Uh, yes. We know that the vault uh, was built out of Harry, yeah. in a sense. So is this Harry's molecules? That yeah, it, well, it's Harry's molecules and the molecules of his coffin, right? But then as it was going through space, it was also scooping up space dust and picking up more stuff. We're, we're all made out of a variety of these elements. So hypothetically, it could be producing food. It could be producing all these things. Um, if I'm in the vault, yeah. is time running parallel with the radiant? Time. Yes. 
Wow. Okay. I had to think about that for a second. <laughs> um, the Cleonic sex tapes or the Cleonic yeah, memories yeah, in general yeah. too, are, how are they recorded? Through their eyes? Is there like, are there tiny drones or there little cameras I, I think in the they're room? recorded through their eyes, but I also think it, at that point in the future, there are cameras like nano cameras that are, you know, like that. Right. Well, they're bigger than a molecule, but not much bigger, right? I think there are cameras like in the pigment on the paint on the wall, you know, all sorts of things. Uh, I, I wonder if you, if you thought about what Hober's uh, very, very rare vintage of wine tastes like. What is it? A You know, it's a, it seems like a red, but what kind of red? Um, that's kind of a spoiler, believe it or not. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. I love it. Okay. I, I told we never, there's never anything that's just thrown out as a throwaway on this show. So the wine's going to cycle back through. Yeah, that's a fantastic, fantastic uh, drop. Thanks so much for joining us, David. We'll be back next week covering episode five. And thanks to everyone listening. Be sure to follow on Apple Podcasts to get the next episode in your feed and watch Foundation on Apple TV Plus where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Gabrielle Lewis and Barry Finkel. Our producers are Ahmed Ali Akbar and Ben Goldberg. Our managing producer is Bria Mariette. Darby Maloney is our editor. Engineering and mixing by Hannes Brown. Music by Carly Bond with additional music provided by Apple. And I'm Jason Concepcion. Thanks so much for listening. A person who extends an open hand in friendship had better have a blade and a fist behind his back. <laughs> <laughs>